Our scripture reading for this evening is found in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel uh, chapter 18, and beginning to read there at verse 21. Uh, I think the context of this passage is is quite interesting. Uh, It's part of a block of teaching from our Lord on matters of the church. Um, uh, In verses 15 to 20, the very previous section, uh, it's dealing there with issues between brothers in the church when there's no repentance. Uh, And there's the instruction there that that we know of, of bringing the the person before the church and uh, for church discipline, um, uh, that sort of thing. And in the very next passage then, which is our text for this evening, Jesus is still dealing with issues of conflict within the church. Uh, But the difference is is now that one brother has wronged another and they ask, uh, they're sorry for what they've done and they ask for forgiveness. Um, That's the context. And Jesus teaches a a parable here regarding that uh, scenario. Um, So let us hear once again the voice of our shepherd through his holy infallible word, Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, 70 times seven, sorry. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Amen. And we trust that God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Have any of you ever wondered what it would be like to ask Jesus a question face to face? Had you been alive in the first century in Judea, I wonder what you would have asked him. It's amazing whenever we you know, try and think that you know, the, the apostles and the followers of Jesus had such great access to him. They could just ask him questions openly and receive an immediate answer from the Son of God. And in our passage this evening, Peter comes to Jesus with an interesting question. Verse 21 of our text, Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter might believe that he's being generous by offering forgiveness up to seven times. 
but it wasn't to go to eight times. There was something of a limit of his forgiveness. Jesus' reply in verse 22, he said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. As we know in, in, in Scripture, the, the number seven is a very symbolic number and it's often used to represent the idea of completeness. And so essentially what Jesus is saying here is we aren't to keep count of how many times we forgive our brother, but rather if they repent, we are to forgive them continually. And to illustrate this point, Jesus teaches them a parable. And things to note about parables um, we know that they are stories told by Jesus about everyday, ordinary activities, but they have within them a, a, an important spiritual lesson. And parables usually teach one or two main ideas, and I trust that we will see that as we, as we make our way through this study this evening. Parables are designed to teach these big ideas about spiritual truth, but we aren't to emphasize every single uh, detail within a parable exhaustively. In this parable, for example, Jesus uses the illustration of, of a master to demonstrate God's forgiveness. But we aren't to say that the way that God acts is exactly the same way that the master acts in this parable. It's a parable. It's, a, it's an illustration. So we don't exhaust every detail like we do with other portions of Scripture. We'll see how that applies later on. But a parable has, has, a, has a main idea or one or two main ideas to teach us, and that should be our focus. So as we turn to look at this parable, the first thing we have is the forgiving master. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So this, this king or this master is settling accounts. And one of his servants owed a debt of 10,000 talents. How much is 10,000 talents? Well, allow me to explain the mathematics of it briefly for you because that's very important to the meaning of this parable. Uh, Jesus' audience well knew that 10,000 talents was a vast sum of money. One talent equaled 6,000 denarii. And you may have heard before that a denarii, it was an average worker's uh, wage for a day. So one talent equaled 6,000 denarii. That's about 20 years wages. In today's terms, for somebody earning 30,000 pounds a year, one talent equaled 600,000 pounds. One talent is 600,000 pounds. And this man owed 10,000 talents. So we're talking about 6 billion pounds in modern terms. Put simply, it was an enormous debt this servant owed to his king. And he couldn't pay. He had nothing in his possession that would come close to satisfying this vast debt. And naturally there would be consequences. Verse 25. As he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. That was of course standard practice for people who owed debts in, uh, in, that, in the ancient world. And how does the servant respond? Verse 26. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Clearly this man was in a state of complete desperation and helplessness and he pleads for more time in order to pay off the debt. How does the king respond to such a helpless plea for mercy? Verse 
27, Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. He forgives him, not because of anything the servant did, but because he had mercy on him, because he had pity on him. What a merciful king. He didn't treat the servant in the way that he deserved. The king had every right to demand full payment for this vast debt, yet out of compassion, he forgives and clears the debt. We clearly see, therefore, how Jesus uses this parable to illustrate the extent of God's forgiveness. Jesus uses this example of human debt to demonstrate that we are all debtors to the glory, honor, and justice of a holy and righteous God. All of humanity are, as it were, servants of the King. We were created by Him and for Him to do His will, to glorify His name, yet we fail to do that. We are born in Adam, the one who sinned and fell from his state of innocency in which he was created. And so we are therefore born with a sinful nature. We don't serve God and worship him as we should. We naturally rebel against him and want to go our own way. And by this rebellion, we have built up a debt to God because of sin. When we break the law of the land, there are fines to pay. If you've been caught doing 35 in a 30 miles per hour zone, you know what I'm talking about. There's a fine to be paid. And our sins, our transgressions against God accrue debt. And we sin against God daily in our thoughts and words and deeds when we fail to conform to or transgress the holy law of God. In this parable, we learn several key things about our sin debt to God. The first thing we learn is that it is a vast debt we owe to God for sin. No debt that we owe in this world can come close. As I said, this servant owed 10,000 talents, some six billion pounds. I don't know about any of you people in Trinity, but I mean, I don't have debts. I couldn't work up a debt of six billion pounds. It's an, an, an insurmountable debt. But such is the vastness of the debt we owe to God due to our many sins. As the psalmist says in Psalm 40, For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head, therefore my heart fails me. Here the psalmist David is acknowledging that he doesn't just commit a few minor sins in his life. But his iniquities, he says, are innumerable. They can't be counted. It reminds me of a story that's told of Martin Luther when, when he was a monk. And he used to frustrate the supervising priests in the confession box because he would go in and spend hours and hours and hours going over and over every sin that he had committed. Of course, he never felt the joy of true forgiveness when he left that confession box and, uh, until he came to his right understanding of justification by faith alone. But, but such was the weight and burden of his sin he, he was a trained lawyer. He, he, he had a lawyer's mind. When he read the law of God, he realized that he was a sinner in so many ways. He knew that his sins were many and that he owed a vast debt to God. God knows each one of our sins. He keeps record of our debts, as it were, like, like the king in this parable. And it's a vast debt we owe to God for sin. I believe this is one of the most overlooked facts in, in 
professing Christianity today. Many people may acknowledge that there's some debt because of sin, but it's not that big. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Surely I deserve to be forgiven for my few wee sins. Beloved, is that your attitude about your sin? Or have you come to realize the vastness of your sin? Both how often you sin and how serious your sin is. Even the smallest sin. That's one of the uses of God's law, isn't it, in Scripture? It makes us see how we fall short. When we read the perfect holy standard God has laid out for us, it should make us tremble. Because when we're honest with ourselves, we know that we fail in so many ways. We worship other things besides God. We don't worship Him as we should. We take His name in vain. We profane His day. We do not honor those with legitimate authority over us. I could go on. So, beloved, in this debt of 10,000 talents owed by a servant to his king, no doubt our Lord was illustrating for us that it's a vast, vast debt we owe to God because of our sin. The second thing this parable teaches about our sin debt is that we have nothing to pay to God in satisfaction for our debt. Not our church membership or our good deeds. Nothing can satisfy the debt we owe for sin. Some people think that if the, even if they realize they sin against God, they, they still think that they can pay back their debts to God. They can do enough good works or, or they can go to a, a church like the Roman Catholic Church and go through all the rituals and ceremonies and hope that they do enough to get to heaven. That through mere religiosity, they can earn favor with God. And beloved, it can be easy for us to slip into this mindset as well. To think that what we are doing for God, even if those things are good and righteous, we can think that they somehow make up for the sins that we've committed. We think we're paying back our sin debt to God by living a righteous life. Note the servant in this parable. He says, verse 26, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. You see there, the servant thought that if he'd been just given a bit more time, he would have been able to pay back his vast debt. But he was completely underestimating the severity and the magnitude of his debt. So he thought he could pay it back. Here Christ is teaching us how some people, when they feel conviction for their sin, foolishly think they can make sufficient satisfaction to God for the sins they've committed. One commentator puts it like this. He that had nothing to pay with fancied he could pay all. See how close pride sticks even to awakened sinners when they're convinced of their sin but not humble before God. So friends, people can sit under the law and gospel being preached and they can feel some remorse and sorrow for their sin, but fail to realize that they are totally helpless to do anything about it on their own. And so they, they try to earn God's favor through religious activity or good works. But our debt because of sin is so vast, it's impossible to pay it back. So we, that's the second thing we need to realize, that we have nothing to pay to God in satisfaction for our debt. The third thing we see about our sin debt here is that God has a right to demand full satisfaction of us for the debt we owe. If God dealt with us in strict justice, we would all be condemned as helpless debtors. Our sin deserves death. Genesis 2, God warned Adam and Eve 
not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. As Paul puts it in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. What sin deserves is death. And so just as the king in this parable was right and just to demand payment for the debt that was owed to him, so God, the holy king of heaven, is right and just to demand punishment for our debt that we owe to him for sin. Therefore, we see that this parable presents to us a great warning of the seriousness of our sin. It's not a small, insignificant matter whenever we sin against a thrice holy God. But having said that, here we also see, don't we, a wonderful picture of the gracious, undeserved mercy of a loving and compassionate God. Verse 27, the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. What a wonderful illustration of how God, when we come to him pleading for mercy, will forgive us our vast debt. Of course, Jesus, God couldn't just forgive the debt of our sin without someone paying the price. That would have been injustice on God's part. The debt was there. The fine has to be paid either by sinful man who deserves eternal punishment for their sin or by a substitute who could satisfy our debt for us. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's why Jesus came, to bear our sins on his own body on the tree. Christ died on the cross to pay the debt we owe for sin. As Isaiah famously puts it, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here in prophetic language is the propitiation of our sin. Brethren, this is what you'll be remembering next Lord's Day as you celebrate the Lord's Supper. That Christ's body was broken and blood was shed so that you could have your vast sin debt, your insurmountable sin debt, taken away. As you prepare your hearts this week, spend time thinking on what it cost Christ to pay your sin debt. He endured the scorn and mocking of the unbelieving Jewish community, the physical beating close to death by the pagan Roman soldiers. More than all that, as he hung on the cross at Calvary, he endured the full cup of God's wrath that you and I deserve for our sin. So when you're tempted to think that your sin debt is small, remember what it cost Christ to clear that debt. Will this not make us a humble people and a thankful people for the willing sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has attained for us by that sacrifice? Beloved, those who participate in the Lord's Supper aright are not those who think they deserve to partake because of their own righteousness. No, those who approach the Lord's table are right are those who know the vastness of their sin debt, who know that they have nothing of worth in themselves to bring to God, but are trusting with childlike faith in the Christ who died for sinners. 
Dear friends, isn't it wonderful to know, as Christ teaches in this parable, that the God of infinite mercy is ready out of pure compassion to forgive the sins of those who humble themselves before him. One commentator puts it like this. There is forgiveness with God for the greatest of sins if they be repented of. In this parable, though the debt was vastly great, the king forgave it all. And though our sins be very numerous and very heinous, yet upon gospel terms, they may be pardoned. Beloved God has presented to each of us in the gospel an offer of free forgiveness from our debt through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we know what Christ has done for us, when we accept it as true, and when we embrace it with our whole being, God clears our debts because Christ has paid it all. What a joy it is to know God's mercy and forgiveness. As the psalmist puts it in Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgive the iniquity of my sin. So a most important question for each of us in this meeting house this evening. Do you know the blessedness of God's forgiveness? Have you come to the king pleading for mercy? Not in the way that this servant did. Don't come to God and say, have patience with me. I'll pay you back. I'll clean up my life. I'll be a better person. I'll start giving more to the church. I'll read my Bible every day. No, dear friends. Come to God in humility. Repenting of your sin with that same attitude as the tax collector who stood in the temple and cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the attitude we ought to have. When we hear the law of God, when our conscience is pricked, when we know we have nothing to offer to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does this parable teach us about the God whom we worship? God will forgive us. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his loving mercy and grace. He has sent his one and only son to suffer and die in order to purchase our redemption. To pay the debt of our sin. So that in him we are forgiven. Certainly the vast merciful compassion of God is something we could spend eternity meditating upon. And all to the praise of his glorious name. That's just one part of this parable. Jesus goes on to talk about the unforgiving servant. We've had the forgiving master, the forgiving king. Now we see the unforgiving servant. Verse 28 and following. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him, took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So the servant leaves the the presence of the compassionate king, and he came across one of his peers, one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii is about four months' wages. A considerable amount of money for sure but a tiny fraction of what the first servant had owed. Yet that servant is unwilling to forgive this relatively small amount, even though he himself has just been forgiven his insurmountable debt. 
This revealed the true nature of the servant's heart. He had not been transformed by the forgiveness that his master had extended to him. He even demonstrated an angry outburst at the one who owed him. He laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, Pay me what you owe. It can be easy for us to look at this man and point out his wickedness. But through this parable, Jesus has much to teach us as well. Particularly as we deal with our fellow brothers and sisters in the church. And that leads us to the main point of application for us in this parable. Which is that it is our duty, especially we who have been forgiven by God, to forgive our brethren. Because you've been forgiven, forgive. It's important here that we remember the context of this parable. This is about forgiving uh, others within the church. When a fellow believer has wronged you or owes you something and cannot pay, and when they come to you in an attitude of repentance for the wrong that they have done, you are to forgive in that scenario, Jesus said, 70 times 7, as often as it takes. I'm sure you can think of your own examples uh, of how a fellow believer could sin against you. These are just a few I came up with. Somebody may have spoken angry or hurtful words to you. He spread false rumors about you and tarnished your reputation. People in the church can have disputes around voting for ministers or elders or deacons or disputes over certain policies and decisions and practices within the church. And it's possible for us to disagree about such things in a gracious and loving way, but sometimes our disagreements are not so loving and gracious. We sin against each other with cold, judgmental attitudes and bitter, unloving words about each other. Even in our everyday lives, maybe you have dealings with others within the church in your, in your business or employment or in social activities. They may in that context sin against you. I think particularly in our homes, we're not just family members by birth, but we're, we're fellow members of the, the family of God, the church. So in our homes, we can oftentimes sin against each other in various ways. Well, in these situations, if your fellow believer who has wronged you comes in what appears to be genuine remorse for the, th- the sins that they have done and asks you to forgive them, it is your duty to forgive them sincerely from your heart. You are not to hate them, bear any grudge or malice against them. You aren't to seek any private revenge. If they owe you anything, you aren't to demand from them more than, more than what they are able to pay. Rather, you're to be ready and willing to forgive them from your heart. This is something we can struggle with because we're not so quick to forgive others as God is to forgive us. That's why Jesus taught this parable. Our Lord was teaching that it's a serious sin on our behalf not to forgive our brethren. Note how the master responds to the servant. Verse 32, Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had compassion on you? And his master was angry, delivered him to the torturers, till he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father will also do to each of you, if if you from your heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Remember how we talked about how the servant's lack of 
willingness to forgive the small debt was evidence that his heart had not been transformed by the master's forgiveness. Well, here, here is a sobering warning, dear friends, for everyone in the visible church. If anyone who claims to be a Christian, and yet when their brother comes genuinely, repentantly asking for forgiveness, if they refuse to forgive that brother and treat them with such harshness and maliciousness as the servant did in our Lord's parable, well, this is evidence that their heart has never been truly transformed by the grace of God. The fact that they refuse to forgive others shows they've not been forgiven by God. In reality, the debt of their sin will be required of them, just as happened to the servant. And when they stand before Christ on judgment day, they will be made to pay the debt for their sin as they spend eternity in hell for their rebellion. Some may read this and say, well, look, here's proof that someone can be forgiven by God and have it taken away, that somebody can lose their salvation. But that is falling into the, the trap of pushing the illustrations of a parable too far, as I mentioned at the start. It's clear from other parts of Scripture that people can be part of the visible church and even display many of the outward signs of being a believer. Such people could say, for example, I, I'm a communicant member of a Reformed church. Of course I'm forgiven. But the fruit in their lives, such as not forgiving their fellow believer, demonstrates that they are in fact not regenerate. They have never truly repented of sin and trusted in Christ. One writer puts it like this, those that do not forgive their brother's trespasses did never truly repent of their own, nor ever truly believe the gospel. And therefore that which is taken away is only what they seemed to have. They were shown to be hypocrites. Christ says that they will receive their just punishment. So my heavenly father also will do to you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The language here reminds us, doesn't it, of the model prayer which our Lord gave to his disciples in Matthew 6. And the, the line there, we know it well, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Those are well-known words, but maybe not so well-known are the words of our Lord that Matthew records immediately after the Lord's prayer where Jesus says in verse 14 of Matthew 6, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Very similar language to that in our own text. And very strong language Christ uses. He says, You are not forgiven by God if you refuse to forgive others. The reality is that even genuine believers who have a sanctified desire to forgive can still struggle with it. We may not stoop to the levels of bitterness and anger uh, as a servant displays in the parable, but often we can be slow to forgive our brother from our heart, as verse 35 requires of us. So how can we cultivate um, such a forgiving spirit? Firstly, we need to take time to meditate upon the wonderful forgiveness of God. You have great opportunity for that this week as you prepare for the Lord's Supper. As your mind is drawn to the cross of Christ, thinking of the forgiveness that he has achieved for you, that all of your sins, all that debt you have accrued before God has been forgiven if you are in Christ by faith. His sacrifice and the meal which we celebrate 
will mean little to you if you do not recognize the vastness of the debt of your sin and that you're totally unworthy and unable to satisfy that debt to God. So when we truly acknowledge our own sinfulness and the wonder of God's forgiveness attained for us by Christ on the cross, then and only then will we be more equipped to forgive others. Verse 33, should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had compassion on you? Notice there the servant's motivation for forgiving his fellow servant was to be found in the forgiveness that he had received. You've been forgiven 10,000 talents. How can you not forgive a hundred denarii? So particularly with our fellow brethren, how can we hold a small grudge against them or fail to forgive them when God has been so gracious to forgive us our many sins against him? When you observe the elements of the Lord's Supper next week, the bread and the wine, look at what it cost our precious Savior, so that your vast sin debt could be paid for. How can you then turn and say, I'm not going to forgive my fellow brother who comes and asks for forgiveness? Think about what that attitude says about your heart. You're saying, they don't deserve my forgiveness. Well, did you deserve God's forgiveness? Did you deserve Christ? bearing the awful cup of God's wrath down to the last dregs so that you could be forgiven? Of course not. But it was out of compassion and grace toward us. So yes, your brother or sister doesn't deserve your forgiveness. But Jesus says, should you not have compassion on your fellow believer just as I had compassion on you? So to become more forgiving, We need to meditate on God's forgiveness in Christ. Secondly, we need to come humbly to God and plead with him for a more forgiving spirit. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism is very helpful on this point when it discusses the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. It teaches us that our ability to forgive others flows from God's grace within us. Shorter Catechism 105. In the fifth petition, which is, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we pray that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all our sins, which we are the more encouraged to ask because by his grace, we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. Notice that important phrase, because by his grace, we are enabled to forgive others. And a forgiving spirit is not something we can conjure up ourselves. Naturally, we don't want to forgive others. Yet by God's grace, he enables us to do it more and more as he conforms us uh, through sanctification as he conforms us into the image uh, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to be those who ask God for a more forgiving spirit, that his grace would work within our hearts. As we conclude then, let's look back to Peter's initial question to Jesus. If my brother sins against me, how often should I forgive him? Up to seven times, is that enough? And in reply, Jesus taught through this parable that when we really grasp the extent of the forgiveness we have received from God? How can we not willingly and readily forgive from our hearts our fellow Christian when they sin against us? Not once or twice, but as often as that sinner shall repent. We go to God expecting forgiveness for our daily sins. Why shouldn't we be so merciful to our brother who comes repentantly? 
As Paul puts it in Ephesians 4 verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This text then presents to us two very clear challenges. Firstly, do you know the reality of God's forgiveness in your life? Are you feeling the weight of your sin debt? Do you long for that burden to be removed? Come to God, the the compassionate King. Come to God with empty hands, pleading for His mercy, trusting alone in Christ's finished work. And He will clear the debt of your sin and remove it from you as far as east is from the west. But secondly, for those of us who are in Christ, are there fellow believers who have sinned against you and you have until now refused to forgive them? What are you to do now? What are you to do in light of the upcoming Lord's Supper? Jesus said in Matthew five twenty three and following, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. You have seven days before you come as a church to celebrate communion. These issues are, are an important part of your preparation. If you look up later in larger catechism 171 on how we are to prepare for the Lord's Supper, after saying that we ought to examine our faith and our devotion to God, it speaks of examining our love for our brethren, including, quote, forgiving those that have done them wrong. That's part of our preparation. That's why I felt this was an appropriate text for this pre-communion service. Your self-examination and preparation this week should not only contain an assessment of your devotion to Christ and your walk with Him, but also how you treat your fellow believer. So can I urge you, brethren, if there are any, if there are any issues between you and your brother and sister in Christ, sort it out this week. Do whatever it takes. Take a few hours off work. Miss out on a weekly social activity. Whatever it takes, go to your brother and be reconciled. Whether you need to ask for forgiveness or you need to offer forgiveness. And then, next Lord's Day, come around the Lord's table and enjoy sweet fellowship and unity around his table as you proclaim and remember the Lord's death and how Christ has reconciled his people to God by his precious blood. May God bless you this week. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of this day that you've given to us, for the privilege to meet together as a body of your people. Grant safety in our travels as we go home, as we face the week ahead, as we look ahead to another Lord's Day next week. Bless us in our, as we still our hearts before you as we seek your face to glorify your name and magnify uh, your holiness throughout our lives, in our homes, in our places of work, uh, in our recreations, in all we do. May we do all to the glory and honor of your great name. Humble us, we pray before you. Grant us mercy and grace from our many sins. We pray all in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.